Let me start by asking a question. What is it that makes a book experimental? Is it a particular writing style or subject matter? Is it just that it's difficult to read? I'm not so sure. Over the next hour, I'm going to look at the work of four Irish writers, all living and working today. Kevin Barry, Eva McBride, Mike McCormack and Claire Louise Bennett. These writers share next to nothing in terms of style, form or method, but their work is often bundled together under the ill-defined banner of experimental writing. I want to ask, well, what does experimental actually mean? To help answer that question, I'd like to introduce Virginia Woolf and her essay, The Narrow Bridge of Art. It's a short piece written in 1927 about a new form of prose which was gathering steam at the time. Nobody indeed can read much modern literature without being aware that some dissatisfaction, some difficulty is lying in our way. On all sides, writers are attempting what they cannot achieve, are forcing the form they use to contain a meaning which is strange to it. Writers are attempting what they cannot achieve. This, for me, is a key idea and a big part of what makes a book experimental. Later in the essay, Wolf goes on to talk about what makes this new writing, and particularly the modern novel, different from the writing of earlier times. It will give not only or mainly people's relations to each other and their activities together, as the novel has hitherto done, but it will give the relation of the mind to general ideas and its soliloquy in solitude. For under the dominion of the novel, we have scrutinised one part of the mind closely and left another unexplored. We have come to forget that a large and important part of life consists in our emotions towards such things as roses and nightingales, the dawn, the sunset, life, death and fate. We forget that we spend much time sleeping, dreaming, thinking, reading, alone. We are not entirely occupied in personal relations. All our energies are not absorbed in making our livings. We long sometimes to escape from the incessant, the remorseless analysis of falling into love and falling out of love, of what Tom feels for Judith and Judith does or does not altogether feel for Tom. We long for some more impersonal relationship. We long for ideas, for dreams, for imaginations, for poetry. Wolf's essay can tell us a lot about the four writers I mentioned earlier. These writers all give us the mind's soliloquy in solitude. Coincidentally, these writers all have significant links with three counties in the west of Ireland, Sligo, Mayo and Galway. This is either where they grew up or where they live now. Most importantly, they set their books here. And so we'll start our journey about a mile outside the town of Lewisburg, County Mayo, in the kitchen of Marcus Conway, the narrator of Mike McCormick's novel, Solar Bones. The bell. The bellas. Hearing the bellas. Hearing the bellas standing here. The bell being heard standing here, 
hearing it ring out through the grey light of this morning, noon or night, God knows. This grey day standing here and listening to this bell in the middle of the day, the middle of the day bell, the Angelus bell in the middle of the day, ringing out through the grey light to hear, standing in the kitchen, hearing this bell, snag my heart and draw the whole world into being here. Pale and breathless, I have to come a long way to stand in this kitchen. Confused, no doubt about that. But hearing the bell from the village church a mile away as the crow flies along the street from the Garda station beneath the giant sycamore trees which tower over it and in which a colony of rooks have made their nests. So many and so noisy that sometimes in spring when they're nesting, their clamor fills the church and... Exhausted now, so quickly. That sprint to the church and the bell. Yes, they're the real thing, the real bells. Not a transmission or a broadcast because there's no mistake in the fuller depth and resonance of the sound carried towards me across the length and breadth of this day and which, even at this distance, reverberates in my chest. A systolic thump from the other side of this parish which lies on the edge of this known world with Shafery and Mueller to the south and the open expanse of Clue Bay to the north. The Angelus Bell ringing out over its village and townlands, over the fields and hills and bogs in between. Six chimes of three across a minute and a half. A summons struck on the lip of the void which gathers this parish together through all its primary and secondary roads with all its schools and football pitches, all its bridges and graveyards, all its shops and pubs, the builder's yard and health clinic, the community centre, the water treatment plant and the handball alley. The made world with all the focal points around which a parish like this gathered itself as surely as the world itself did in the beginning of time, through mountains, rivers and lakes. When it gathered in these parts around the Bernown River, which rises in the Loch the Hills and flows north across the sea, carving out the floodplain at which all roads, primary and secondary, following the contours of the landscape, make their way, in the middle of which stands the village of Lewisburg from which the Angelus bell is ringing, drawing the world up again, mountains, rivers and lakes, acres, roots and perches, animal, mineral, vegetable, covenant, cross and crown. The given world with all its history to brace myself while standing here in this kitchen of this house. I've lived in for nearly 25 years and raised a family. This house outside the village of Lewisburg in the county of Mayo on the west coast of Ireland the village in which I can trace my seed and breed back to a time when it was nothing more than a ramshackle river crossing of a few smoky homesteads clustered around a forge and a log bridge. A sodden stone hamlet, not yet gathered to a proper plan nor licensed to hold a fair. My line traceable to the gloomy prehistory in which a tenacious clan of farmers and fishermen kept their grip on a small patch of land. In many ways, I only spent about six or seven years living in Lewisburg between the ages of 12 and 18 or 19. And that seems to me to be the important period in my life in many ways. This is Mike McCormick, the London-born, Mayo-bred author of three novels and two collections of short stories. Every book I've written for the past 10 years of that, my pen and the gravity of the pen and the pull and the steering of the pen defaults to Lewisburg. 
Solar Bones is McCormick's most recent novel, and it takes place over the course of an hour on All Souls Day, the 1st of November. It begins with the Angelus Bell at midday and ends with the one o'clock news. In between, Marcus Conway, father, husband, engineer with the county council, reflects on his life. For me as a writer, the book comes as an unravelling of, the, of, the, of the, the image in the first page. This man, in the middle of the day, bumbling around his own kitchen. For me as a writer, that leads to loads of questions. Who is he? Where is he? It's the middle of the day. How come he's not at work? Why is he not at work? Why is he so uncertain of himself in his own kitchen? Why does he insist on his name again and again? Why is he insisting on that he is who he is, he says he is? Only that he keeps this and he must thinks it's jeopardized in some way, or that his existence is menaced. How does existence be menaced? So that line of thinking and that mode of questioning leads to, okay, this man is dead. Yes, Marcus Conway is dead. It's not a huge shock, but it provides a logical foundation for McCormick's most brazenly experimental decision. Solar Bones has no full stops. And then I think if it was dead, you think, you think, what sort of a pro style would a, you know, what sort of a pro style is a, is a, is a, is a, a ghost going to attempt? And I, everything I, everything I've known about spooks and ghosts thought they were pretty flowing beings and that. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't, full stop would present an ontological hazard to them that they could you a ghost could dissipate at a full at a full stop so they would seek continuance and the way of continuance was build up a pro style that has a kind of a rolling systolic kind of a rhythm on that flows on so is this why solar bones is an experimental novel just because it has no full stops i don't think so there's something deeper going on here a more fundamental kind of gamble I actually think that it's much more more thematic experiment than that. This is a book about a, a middle-class rural man who's happy, who loves his wife, who has no material wants, who loves his kids and wants the best for them. Now make a novel out of that. Okay, it seemed to me that that was always the more difficult proposition, the more experimental proposition was to start from this comfortable standpoint and then make a novel out of that. That was the, 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 uh, that was the, the, the difficulty. It sounds prosaic when you sum it up like that, but I think Solar Bones is trying to express the complexity and the slipperiness of what we usually call belonging. It's ultimately a book which attempts something it cannot achieve, to describe the totality of one person, their life, their mind, and their unique place in the world. And the notion of, of a formal experiment is almost invariably fragmented of sequence. It antagonizes the reader, and, and it's adversarial. And, and, and it speaks to this notion we have that seems to be current, is that, the, that human experience and human consciousness is kind of fragmented, and that it's spread all over time and place and everything, particularly in this digital world that we live in and everything like that. But Solar Bones seems to insist on an older definition of what it is to be human. It seems to me to insist on an idea of, no, we are of a piece. We are harmonic and unified. We are rhythmic, and and it seems to demo, and here's how it's and here's how it's done. 
And in this one singular unbro unbroken piece, this one, this singular rhythmic unbroken piece, I think that might be, might be its central argument. It would be easy to miss this ambition in Solar Bones, to let the lack of full stops obscure the commitment it makes to both its message and its method. Sure, the book is concerned with unity and harmony, but it gets there through anger and frustration, pettiness and envy, illness and death. McCormick's sense of integration allows for tension and contradiction. It allows for characters who argue with themselves and each other, who let themselves down. It shows us a world built on compromise and a balance not easily achieved or maintained. Unity, yes, but no utopia. Solar Bones isn't interested in perfection, but in how the flaws, the mistakes, the digressions can seem, from a certain perspective, to be natural and even vital. Here's Virginia Woolf again on the modern novel. It will give the relations of man to nature to face his imagination, his dreams. But it will also give the sneer, the contrast, the question, the closeness and complexity of life. It will take the mold of that queer conglomeration of incongruous things, the modern mind. This is the great thing that the novel has, isn't it? As, as it's, it's saving grace and why it will survive. Kevin Barry is the author of two novels and two collections of stories, as well as numerous plays, essays and radio dramas. We're sitting in his writing shed, out the back of his house in County Sligo. It's, it's an unimprovable tool, like, like a hammer in some ways, for, for like putting you in, in direct communion um, with another consciousness. Barry's latest novel, Beetlebone, puts us in direct communion with the adult mind of John Lennon in the late 1970s as he makes a desperate pilgrimage to his private island in Clue Bay. It's a frantic scream of a book, madcap and melancholy by turns, given to wildness and sorrow in equal measure. Barry's version of John Lennon is at the end of his tether. Blocked, miserable and lost. He's come to find his island, to row out into the bay in search of a place where he can really hear himself think. I had a recurring kind of image in, in mind when I was writing Beetlebone about kind of what I wanted the experience to feel like um, for the reader. And I, was, I kept thinking of a deep fat fryer where, where the oil is hot and sizzling and bubbling. And I wanted it to be that hot bubbling oil is the, is the insides of John Lennon's brain. And I'm going to lower the reader down in a basket into it. You know, and how, how would you like that? <laughs> you know, is that a comfortable experience? Beetlebone gives us the highs and lows of a mind in turmoil. A man with noble ambitions for his future creative output, struggling with a brain trapped in his own grief-stricken past. Most of the book is an attempt at articulating, in an increasingly crazed and anguished way, exactly what it means to live with romantic notions of long-vanished decades, the ghosts of your lost youth. Barry is attempting something here which he cannot achieve trying to capture an intangible but palpable sense that you cannot outrun the people and the places which have formed you. Sometimes it takes the form of a manic dialogue, like a jumped-up dramatic production. Sometimes it's just a troubled man ranting at himself, the words on the page nothing more than the unfiltered stream of his mind. 
watches from the Lyceum steps, all the calm of China and its bone white eyes. Busy faces, pug faces, Lancashire Irish, the eaves of the stores and the eaves of the churches, and by the fucking Lyceum, and by the window of Crips, I'm the Natty Cox Barrow. The turn for the tunnel for Central Station. The sisters again, they whisper and turn again. Prettier one's hand is held over her mouth, her face is pale and interested, her hand is white and tiny, glove of bird bones, I'm by the Lyceum, I'm by the turn for the tunnel for Central Station, military click of high heels on the stones of Bull Street, the city rumbles beneath, its limestone air and secret reaches, the scent of the girls' voices is on the air, their voices are coloured yellow and racing green. Their voices come from the hollows of the woods. By the steamy window of a murderous calf, a gummy old coot commits an act of murder on a plate of black pudding and chips. Hello, Tony. Hello, Taff. Virginia Woolf spent a lot of her writing life trying to depict the nature of what she called the modern mind, the way the man on the street had changed in her time. He is extremely alive to everything, to ugliness, sordidity, beauty, amusement. He follows every thought careless where it may lead him. He discusses openly what used never to be mentioned, even privately. McCormick's solar bones and Barry's beetle bone share more than a location. Their stories told from an intimate and revealing position within the mind. It's something like a stream of consciousness, or rather what McCormick calls a stream of post-consciousness. The mind talking to itself, the interior monologue of the mind in motion. This is a well-established form of literary narrative. From the time of Dorothy Richardson and Virginia Woolf, this method has allowed writers to represent the direct thoughts of their characters on the page. Like McCormick, both Emer McBride and Claire Louise Bennett tell their stories from inside the modern minds of their narrators. They get close, sometimes uncomfortably close, to the thoughts which spark and fizzle in their brains. For me, I wanted to be able to put into words an experience of living that one doesn't usually get in literature. That it's hard to get at through words. Emer McBride is talking about her first novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. In literature, you're at the mercy of grammar and how one is supposed to describe one's experience in the world in words with a, with a capital letter at the start and a full stop at the end. And it seems to me that so little life retains its originality and its vitality once you have to have a capital letter at the full, at, and a full stop at the end. Because, you know, the brain doesn't work in linear sentences. We do not experience life in linear sentences. Everything happens at once. Come running by the lake, fall down. I am almost too old for that. I should be smoking, drinking now. Taking hands up my jumper, fingers down my skirt. I should be, I should be. I am not. Yet. I stand there, eyes mist to the wind, feel a fresh rush past up my nose, that sting, that new day. It's so early in the morning. 
I see the white and clear rising up of the waters, running round my feet, my gravel feet, my earthbound feet that feel the sway of it, water. Of the world that's changing now, no, changed. It's changed and this is looking back. The past, the flash front, that mix. Knowing what, how I should do, be, say, that's going up. That flock of geese is rising, rising to make all the noises honk like cars and wings beat hard on the air, battering it, cutting it down. The going up and up, feathers and fat young breasts rise and rise above me. I see, I see clear. A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing is a book about an unnamed girl trying to grow up trying to think her own thoughts as she moves from childhood to the adult world. It's mostly set in anonymous, claustrophobic towns in Sligo and Mayo, where McBride grew up in the 1980s. By the time she wrote the book, McBride was 26 and living in London. I don't think I would have written that book if I had been still living in Ireland. It, the distance allowed me to be as angry as I was on the page. Uh, in a way that I probably would have carried around inside me much more, would have felt more cautious about expressing so violently um, if I had still been living in Ireland. McBride's narrator is altogether different to McCormack's. Marcus Conway is, or was, a middle-aged man, pretty sure of himself and comfortable in his place, a man whose voice rambles on and on, uninterrupted, harmonic and singular. McBride's girl is fragmented. Her thoughts are constantly broken off midway through, disturbed by other ideas or by the interruptions of other people. She is trying to find her rhythm, to find her name and her place. Her language and her voice, splintered and sharp-edged, are an attempt to draw herself up, to constitute and establish herself, to say, this is who I am. Let it all begin again. My body cold, reflected back to my face as I stand there, look down. I see my sorry self, that girl, my wicked. I see new ripe ones, interesting eyes, purged off, cleaned out for sure the stings and bites of those things that happen in your head when you are young and cannot fathom never being clean again. Claire Louise Bennett's first book, Pond, is a collection of short stories, all of which share a single narrator. This woman has a lot in common with McBride's girl. She too is unnamed. The people around her are unnamed. Both women are outsiders in an unspecified place somewhere in the west of Ireland. There is, however, a key difference. Where McBride's girl is trying to form herself, trying to establish her presence in the world, Bennett's narrator is quietly unnervingly moving in the opposite direction. She is melting into her environment. What ultimately brings them together is that their forming and unforming happens through the forceful manipulation of language. Well, I suppose because language and, and reality are so sort of intertwined, like, like how do you make, how do we each make our, our individual worlds? You know, how are they sort of constructed? And there is a sense that it's sort of done, you know, through, through language. This is Claire Louise Bennett, and we're in her living room in Galway. Through language, we can kind of almost pull ourselves together, you know, and, and the more we can kind of um, 
express ourselves, then the more sense of a self we have, in a way. And I suppose that's like kind of the Freudian idea as well. Of, you know, the more we can get our story together, the, the more together we're going to feel. Both McBride's and Bennett's narrators are looking for the words which will put a shape to their story. Language, for them, is not something with which to express the thought already conceived, already refined, but rather a means to capture the thought as it plays out. They are unpredictable, vivid, sometimes unfathomable. But while McBride's girl is trying to finish her thoughts, to follow them to completion, Bennett's narrator is untangling everything, trying to reconnect with something essential in her life which has become obscured. She wants to unhook language from its usual spots, to take pleasure in it again, to sense and discover it anew. But then there's that kind of fantasy as well of just letting all that sort of just kind of go. So that the words and, and self are kind of just kind of freed up from um, these sorts of... Um, anchors, I suppose, the, 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 the familiar kind of um, uh, frameworks that give them ongoing kind of uh, validity and um, by which we are recognised and which words then, you know, become currency. Um, I, I love the idea of things just sort of um, untethering from that and being in a kind of a, a mad kind of vortex of like, what I don't know really. It's, it somehow seems to freshen everything again, that you feel that, you know, everything that after a while starts to feel just so bogged down by the way that it's used all the time. And you know what I mean? You feel like, oh, just throwing it all up in the air again. And... <laughs> oh, fuck the leaves and fuck the flowers. I want to see naked trees and hear the earth gasp and settle into a warm and tender mass of radiant darkness. I want to see the marks of hooves, not 11th-hour disposable barbecues. I want most of all to get inside there. That's right, that's always been true. It's the first thing I can remember, standing at the back window looking at the lawn and knowing exactly everything beneath it and wanting to get back there. You don't know how passionate it is down there. I believe that's where I lost my heart. Both Pond and A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing are very intimate, immediate, particular books. Their sense of atmosphere and voice is clear right from the first paragraph. But neither book has any need of the usual markers of realism. No names for people or places. No ages or dates or visual descriptions of the characters. No background or scene setting. These are books stripped back to something more essential. Well, I suppose it's, it's about trying to boil something down to its essence and what do we need to be able to impart the atmosphere of a place and that maybe we don't need the name and we don't need the place, we don't need the time and, and we don't need all the signifiers of identity to still understand the atmosphere. I was interested, and I, and I think I was interested generally in like how, how little could I get away with in terms of sort of everything? How little could I get in terms away with in terms of, you know, story or plotting or explanation or description? Or I really wanted to kind of, yeah, pair back on that and, and see, you know, how much do we really sort of need? The result in both books 
is a central narrative voice which is gripping and recognizable without any prescription about how they look or how they should seem in the reader's head. You know, you, I kind of would read about it and in some reviews she was described as middle-aged and in other reviews she was described as young and other ones she was described as quite sassy and other ones kind of frumpy and, you know, so it was kind of all the, all the interpretations were completely different and I loved that. I thought, well, that's really, that's really quite interesting, you know, that you can, you can kind of have it so it's open and yet, but not vague, you know, it's still people felt some connection there. I wonder if this abstraction, this lack of specifics, has something to do with the relationship between the narrators and their surroundings. It's something McBride's girl and Bennett's narrator share with the John Lennon we find in Beetlebone. These people were not born in the place where they now find themselves. They have little or no family there, no history. Their connections to these environments are less easily defined than they would be for Marcus Conway in Solar Bones, a man who can trace his ancestral line back centuries in the same spot. McCormick says that this kind of rootedness is a necessary ballast for his characters, and for Marcus in particular. You have to conjecture and speculate from a place, from a position. And I seem to do it, and my characters seem to do it, from the landscape of Mayo. It is something of which they are certain, or me as a writer, or my characters, as that they, that they find it. They literally have it as a solid ground underneath their feet. For the narrator of Pond, however, there is no such solid ground, and nothing like the same certainty can be found in her environment. The road home doesn't have any cat signs or stripes painted on it anywhere. There is no pavement and the cars go by too close and very fast. On either side of the road is the ditch, the hawthorn trees and any amount of household waste, including actually dumped electrical items. And as I walked from my friend nearby's house along the road towards home a week or so before Christmas, I stood still at the usual place and experienced a sudden upsurge of many murky impressions and sensations that have lurched and congregated in the depths of me for quite some time. If you are not from a particular place, the history of that particular place will dwell inside you differently to how it dwells within those people who are from that particular place. Your connection to certain events that define the history of a particular place is not straightforward because none of your ancestors were in any way involved in or affected by these events. You have no stories to relate and compare. You have no narrative to inherit and run with. And all the names are strange ones that mean nothing to you at all. And it's as if the history of a particular place knows all about this blankness you contain. Consequently, if you are not from a particular place, you will always be vulnerable for the reason that it doesn't matter how many years you have lived there. You will never have a side of the story. Nothing with which you can hold the full force of the history of a particular place at bay. And so it comes at you directly, right through the softly padding soles of your feet, battering up throughout your body before unpacking its clamoring store of images in the clear, open spaces of your mind, opening out at last, out, 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 and shimmered across the pale expanse of a flat, defenseless sky. All the names mean nothing to you, and your name means nothing to them. Mike McCormick studied philosophy as a student, and you can see the evidence in his work before Solar Bones. It borrows a careful, analytic, 
rigorous sensibility from that discipline, and there's a tendency towards precision and accuracy in his sentences. Those things um, came to my aid as a as a as a as a young fiction writer, um, and I thrived on it and that. But I was very aware that there was a sense and a nonsense that was lying outside of those that 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 by virtue of their accuracy and finical attentiveness and forensic attentiveness, I was aware that there was vast, slobbery swathes of life, vast, energizing, glorious swathes of life that was fallen outside the attentiveness of these sentences. There's a sense beyond reason. There's a sense beyond logic. And I think a part of that is what I wanted to capture in, in, the, in the technique and the style of solo bones. Watch the screen cloud to a fizzy interference as it shut down, leaving the room to dark silence and a burnt, scalded feeling behind my eyes, as if the light from the monitor had scalded them to the core. The kind of feeling you imagine you would have just before the world goes up in flames. Some refined corrosion eaten away at the rods and cones, collapsing their internal structure before they slope out of your sockets and run down your cheekbones leaving you standing hollow-eyed in the middle of some desolation with the wind whistling through your skull just before the world collapses. Mountains, rivers and lakes, acres, roods and perches into oblivion, drawn down into that fissure in creation where everything is consumed in raging tides and swells of non-being. The physical world gone down in flames, mountains, rivers and lakes, and pulling with it also those human rhythms that bind us together and draw the world into community. Those daily rites, rhythms and rituals upholding the world like solar bones, that rarefied amalgam of time and light whose extension through every minute of the day is visible from the moment I get up in the morning and stand in the kitchen window with a mug of tea in my hand, watching the first cars of the day passing on the road, every one of them known to me, name, number plate and destination one after another, beginning at half seven with Francis Dugan in a green megan. After our workers, a receptionist in the Clube Hotel. I went to school with her husband, Philip, who was about to start chemo. And Sarah Morgan going in the opposite direction to begin our eight o'clock shift in Allegan. And Mark Rodian in 07 Pajero, returning from the night shift in Baxter. And the school bus going back to collect the kids from the farthest end of the parish and marching Dove in the green post van, followed by Shamie Moran in the milk lorry, 7,000 litres of milk sloshing round in the tank behind his head, and Jimmy Lyons behind him in a blue Passat. In half an hour, he will throw open the gates of the builder's yard on the Kilgiver Road. So that five mornings a week, I watch these early starters from the kitchen window with a mug of tea in my hand. And when I see Jimmy's Passat turn left onto the main road, I know that it's nearly half seven and that I'd better get a move on if I'm going to make it to work on time. Knowing also that Marith has still got at least 40 minutes in bed yet, a thought which has always pleased me, as if those minutes were my gift to her each morning. The single, unbroken span of solar bones gives McCormick the space to incorporate these nonsensical, slobbery, energizing swathes of life, to digress into the space beyond logic, and to then come back to sense and reason again. 
It's a transition that all these books make repeatedly, following a sense of curiosity and intrigue about what lies just beyond everyday thought. I, I never like to sort of succumb to the first thing, the first sort of place that makes itself available in terms of how to take, where to take something. You know, I kind of like resisting that and I kind of go, no, don't, don't go there and don't. There is always that and, and, and writing, writing sentences, there's, there's always that undertow that will kind of lead you into making sense, I suppose, ultimately. Um, and I don't, I'm very, I'm very, I don't know. I've got a problem with making sense. <laughs> Out beyond and way back and further past that still, and such was it since. But after all appearances and some afternoons misspent, it came to pass, not all was done and over with. No, no. None shally-shally on that here hill. Ah, but that was idle then, and change was not an old hand. No, no. None shilly-shilly on that here first rung. So much girded and with new multitudes, the sun came purple and the hail turned in a year or two, and that was not all. No, no. None gany gany on that here moon loose. Turns were taken and time put in. So much heft and grimace there with calluses all along the diagonal. Like no other time in the time taken back that too, like none other that can be compared to a bovine heap raising steam or the eye cast of a flailing comet. Back and forth examining the egg spill and the cord fray and the clowning barnacle. And all day with no break to unwrap or unscrew or squint and flex or soak the brush. No, no. None flim flim on that here cavorting mainstay. From tree to tree in the pond there deepening and some small holes appearing and any number of corn stalks twisting into a thing far from corn. That being the case, there was some wretched plotting turned to stone holding nothing. No, no, none rubby rubby on that here yardstick. Came then from the region of silt and aster all along the horse traveling fire of Albert. First these sounds and then their makers. When passed betwixt and entered fully, pails were swung and notches considered. There was no light, no none. None shvim shvim on that here piss crater. And it being the day still considered. Oh, all things considered and not one mentioned since all names had turned in and handed back. Knowing this, the hounds disbanded, knowing that the ground muddled headstones and milestones and gallows and the almond-shaped buds of freshest honeysuckle. And among this chaffing tumult, fates were scrambled and mortality made untidy and pithy vows took themselves a breather. This being the way an irreversible homewards now was a lifted skeletal thing of the past without due application or undue meaning. No, no, none shap shap on that here domicile shank. From right foot to left, first by the firs, then by the river hung and loitered, and the blaze there slow to come. All night waking with no benefit of sleeping and the breath cranking and the heart place levering and the kerosene pervading but failing to jerk a flame from out any one thing. No, none. None whoosh, whoosh, on that hair burnished cunt. All the earth, the earth and the women there inside the simpering hut stamped and spiritless blowing on the coals. Not far away but be on the way of return. By the time I was starting to write Beetlebone, I was getting more interested in um, losing control <laughs> on the page to some degree. What happens if you let it go a little bit looser and a little bit wilder? And where, where will it take you then? And it's, that's a, a scary process. Resisting control 
resisting the natural slope towards making sense. It's scary because there's no way to predict where you'll end up. In Beetlebone, John Lennon's downward spiral plummets towards the unreachable memories of his dead parents, his lost youth, the sound and shimmer of Bold Street in Liverpool, the face of his father. And at the bottom of that descent, Barry finds that he's writing as much about himself as anyone else, writing about what is driving him to tell this story in the first place. Fiction is blending into fact. I was in a pub in, in, in London on my own <laughs> one night um, and I had bought a, a, a lovely, fancy, new moleskin notebook and I started transcribing my, my, my scattered notes into this notebook. And as I, I wrote the, 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 the true facts of the story down, I found um, a kind of an effortlessness starting to the sentences an ease coming into it and nothing up until this point had been effortless or easeful about writing a novel and you pay attention you know when when the hand is suddenly moving kind of very casually and with ease across the page you go why 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 is it doing so now um and then while this was happening i found myself writing directly about my mother's death for the first time um when i was a child of 10 uh, she died quite suddenly um I'd, I'd never written about it directly. And I thought, what the hell is this doing in the middle of my um, of my John Lennon in the West of Ireland novel? Um, and I kind of very quickly realised then, well, this is the heart of the book. This, this is what it's about, you know? Uncle travels on a broken lung. Uncle's coming up the stairs. Wheezes like a busted accordion. Uncle Bartlett's travelling lung. The way his lips make the words and the news they bring. She's gone, John. Motherless waif left on the docks or some such violin fucking thing. She's gone. Barry could never have predicted this outcome. And it takes some courage to follow the thought all the way. Not to turn your back on it and retreat to the funnier, neater story happening elsewhere. I like the book. It was also clearly was about how to make something. How, how, how do you make a piece of creative work? Um... And you do so by, by going into your own dark places um, and, go, and going into uh, memories that are, that are difficult as well as happy. Um, and that's how, to make anything worthwhile, you have to go on those more, uh, more difficult uh, journeys within as well. There is, in all these books, a push to make sense of the nonsensical, or at least to draw it in, to account for the illogical or unreconcilable aspects of the world within the narratives of our ordinary, everyday lives. To do that, to capture these incomprehensible experiences and sensations, a new approach to language is necessary. This language has to be discovered each time, constructed on the spot, with little or no regard for the pre-existing rules. The language itself is experimental, because it seeks to say something which hasn't yet been adequately expressed. And it attempts a form of communication which, as Virginia Woolf put it, has so far been impossible to achieve. When you want to communicate particular types of information, it's completely right that it should be grammatical and, and everyone should know how to do that. But when you're trying to talk about the, the human experience as a whole, to try and capture that which is impossible to do, but at least to make an attempt. You can't pretend that that language works in the same way, can work in the same way, can plumb the depths in the same way as, as if you're writing a, 
you know, a report. It's not a report of a life. It's trying to really deeply communicate the experience of a life. And what a life McBride's girl has. The girl is becoming, half-forming, and we're right there with her, in her head, as it happens. And we're with her as some of the worst things which can happen to a person happen to her. She's bullied, abused, and raped. There is unspeakable trauma. And still, we're with her. No distance, no room for reflection. McBride is saying, no, stay, witness this, feel it. There's no explanation and no way out. I, as the writer, want to be completely invisible. I'm not there telling the reader what they should think about what they are experiencing and what they are reading. I want them to experience it as though it is happening inside their own body and then come out of that experience and decide what they think about it. I don't want to be there in the middle of the rape scene saying, look how terrible this is. See what this man is doing to her. Can you imagine if this was you or your daughter or your son or who this was happening to? I don't want that. I want people to read it as though it was happening right then and there to them and then come out and think about about, about it, just to decide what they think of that whole experience. It's really, instead of saying, well, you know, don't judge a man till he walked in his shoes, just say, walk in the shoes. The house will still be quiet if I go there, drip the floor. I felt this morning's strange beginning. I know, I know I won't tell. Yet, to whom I go, I see the heron fly, dart of it over my head. Heading are you out to sea, to the new found world, old now though, to a sudden death, or a happy mate, or a quiet circle, or a quiet nest. I watch it overhead, that heron flying towards unknown. I don't think I will be clean now. Think instead I'll have revenge for lots of all kinds of things. The start is, that is love. Both Bennett and McBride push their readers into an uncomfortable closeness with their narrator without ever relying on plot twists or moral dramatics to generate interest. Instead, the vagaries of their language the absorbing power of their words are enough to create a radical presence on the page. A girl is a half-formed thing, sees the evolution of traditional character and language undermined and interrupted by repressive forces, while Pond reverses the clarifying aspects of writing, undoes writing's conclusive tendency. Bennett, in particular, isn't trying to use language to establish characters, facts, or storylines. There is no desire to recreate life or to explain it. I don't necessarily feel sometimes that I need to be exact or even accurate. Um, I think th that's not what's Im important to me, really, in a way. I'm not sure verisimilitude is something that I'm um, that, that concerned about. Alone in her cottage, the narrator of Pond gradually loses her grip on reality, loses her sense of herself. 
She doesn't, she's not even sure whether she's got her eyes closed or not. And her sense of what's immediately around her and the objects, it's all got a little bit um, kind of diffuse and, and uh, she's not quite, it's quite odd, isn't it? It's not quite clear. This sense of diffusion reaches its peak near the end of Pond in the story Morning, 1908. There's that story, um, Morning, 1908, which is kind of a peculiar story. The narrator, by now quite isolated and disarrayed, walks alone up a small country road. While lingering by a gate, a young man passes her without stopping. She has quite a strong sort of reaction and then her reaction that she has troubles her and it's sort of actually kind of complex, more complex than it first seems. She thinks that she's afraid of him. But she's not really... The thoughts which follow from this unexpected near encounter bring us to some dark places, brushing up against ideas too strange and devastating to look upon directly. She realizes that he might he might attack her, and in a way she kind of thinks that she, she might like him too, or not even that, but if what does it mean? Like, can she be attacked is the question at the center of that story. And the reason why it's come up is because she feels so much part of her environment and so diffuse and so porous in a way and unbounded that what, how can she be, how can anyone violate her? How can she be transgressed? You know, like, um, and that's when it, you know, that's when it, it can possibly get a bit, a bit scary and a bit unhinged, you know, how far, how far can you, can you go in this sense of, of letting everything go and definition go and yourself kind of go and and how then do you protect yourself I suppose you know if you can't if you can't define yourself then how can you protect yourself this is a question that links all the books I've been speaking about here in the face of immense social pressure McBride's nameless girl is trying and failing to define and protect herself Marcus Conway defines himself again and again in order to protect the sliver of half-life he's been granted after his death. The Beetlebone version of John Lennon is desperately searching for the facts and the connections which can define him, give his life meaning, protect him against the ghosts of his family. Bennett's narrator is becoming undefined, slipping into a perilous, dissociative state. If we're looking for a thread to pull all of this together, a single struggle which unites all these writers, then maybe it's the struggle to say those things which we cannot say or even think in everyday life. To face up to the memories, experiences and ideas which might, in our more vulnerable moments, sneak up and take hold of us. This might be a personal trauma, but it could also be something kind of vague, fuzzy and abstract something overwhelming and unspecified, which nonetheless needs expressing. Love, grief, failure, a sense of home or a sense of self. The experiment and the risk is in finding a new way to express those familiar, defining, and yet so often indescribable parts of our lives. You know, mostly as you, as you go through your day, you know, it's grand. You know, <laughs> you're, you're, you're getting along with this and that and the other. But sometimes you come into one of those kind of 
moments of pregnant rest. We'll call it that, okay, where you suddenly get a kind of a, this kind of broader view and this bigger view about what's going on and where you're going and what's happening and all this, and it's kind of shocking. And I think writers and artists and poets and musicians are the people who are prepared to try and hold onto those moments and try and linger in them a bit and try and, try and work with them and, and, and see, 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 where, see where you can bring that feeling to. Um, and it can be dangerous work and, and, it, and it can kind of unseat you. I think every, every, every person, you know, falls into that little moment sometimes, that kind of weird, strange stage where you're kind of seen, you know, the machinations of your daily life is this kind of insignificant stuff, really, and all these big, vast things that are circling around you all the time. Um, and I, uh, what do you think about them? Should you even try to think about them? And I think, I think you know, novels are very hard to do, um, and stories and 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 paint and pictures is all very hard because you're trying to get at these things which really resist. Um, expression in so many ways. Um, that's why the difficult, but there, there, there's nothing worthwhile that isn't difficult. Um, there's no place worth getting to that doesn't ever have, have a lot of obstacles in its path as you get there. So this is my definition of experimental. To start without knowing where you'll end up. To follow a thought all the way. Even if that means spending time with uncomfortable, disturbing notions, ideas which might, in the end, prove to be too much for us. After all, there will always be things we can't say, not in any straightforward way, not even to ourselves. Kevin Barry, Emer McBride, Mike McCormack, and Claire Louise Bennett are writers who drive into those troubled and tense parts of the mind. They look for new ways, new styles, new forms to express what traditional language leaves unspoken. It's no wonder their words sometimes come out in unusual shapes and combinations. Just like the modernist pioneers of the last century, these writers are attempting to represent the full spectrum of human experience in their work. Their writing seeks out joy and laughter, pain and loss with equal fervor. They prove for us in our own time, that it isn't some fractured syntax or unorthodox subject matter which defines the experimental, but rather the willingness to linger in ambiguous places, paying attention to the inexpressible aspects of our lives. They are attempting, as Virginia Woolf put it in her 1927 essay, The Narrow Bridge of Art, things we cannot achieve. The power of music the stimulus of sight, the effect on us of the shape of trees or the play of color, the emotions bred in us by crowds, the obscure terrors and hatreds which come so irrationally in certain places or from certain people, the delight of movement, the intoxication of wine. Every moment is the center and meeting place of an extraordinary number of perceptions which have not yet been expressed. Life is always, and inevitably, much richer than we who try to express it.
The Fractured Voice was presented and produced by Ian Malini. The reader was Neve Corcoran. The programme was first broadcast in 2018.